0: Welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. Today we have a really special guest, Eli Harwood, who's a licensed therapist, author, and educator who has more than 17 years of experience helping people process relational trauma and develop secure attachment relationships with their children and partners. You may know Eli from her Instagram account, Attachment Nerd, But what you may not know is that Eli is also a brilliant adoption competent therapist who spent two years living in Seoul working with Korean adoptees at the beginning of her career. This conversation felt like the equivalent of a warm hug when you didn't realize you needed, and hence feels even more grounding. We hope it might feel like that for you as well. In this episode, we talk about how Eli ended up working with the international adoption community, the barriers for some adoptive parents in supporting adoptees, what kinds of stuff can come up when adoptees spend time in their birth countries, childhood trauma and attachment wounds, and finally the importance of hope, that little thing that often gets left out of conversations about mental health and trauma in the healing process. We know we often say that this is our favorite episode, but this one really might be it. Hannah says it's hers, at least. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much, Eli, and nice to meet you online. Um, So just to um, give you a little bit of background, I actually also lived in Korea for about five years in total, um, which was a wonderful experience. But also, like, at times, as you would probably know, um, it can be isolating and confronting as an adoptee. And there was a real lack of English-speaking mental health services um, yes. let alone adoption competent ones yes um and so Meju kim another korean adoptee and, and a good friend of mine i remember saying years ago oh there used to be a great therapist here <laughs> <after> <laughs> <Jeff'd."> <laughs> um and so then i so i remember hearing your name like years ago and then I stumbled upon Attachment Nerd on Instagram. Oh my so know, goodness, how random,
2: how random.
1: And I was like, wait a minute, that name sounds really familiar. And anyway, so I'm curious yeah, about how you found yourself um, living in Korea and how you started working with adoptees. So my
2: family story is um, kind of interesting in that my mother grew up in Hong Kong. So from the time she was six until she was 16, um, she was her family was a part of like Caterpillar Industries and that was like where their headquarters were. And so she was um, a culturally American white kid living internationally in Hong Kong. And so her identity development was complicated. Um, She really identifies with the term third culture kid, which is sort of a term to describe like anyone who grows up outside of their parents, country of origin for a long period of time that affects their development. So my mom's a third culture kid and her identity is very global and complex. And she felt far more comfortable in like uh, the Hong Kong culture, general Asian culture than she did in Western culture. So she came back to the U.S. and was like, what the is this, like, I? this is not land with me, um, and then my husband also grew up partially internationally in Amsterdam and Germany and the U.S., so I kind of think of us culturally as a family, it's like we have a lot of, like, identity crisis, you know, like, I had, like, a even as a kid, I was growing up in Littleton, Colorado, but, like, I had this, like, strong sense of, like, a connection to Hong Kong, and it was a place I'd never been But like somehow I felt connected to it. So that's sort of our general identities. I finished graduate school and my husband and I got married and we were like, we wanna go somewhere. We don't wanna just stay here, we wanna go somewhere. So I basically scoured the internet and was like, where can I practice therapy and keep getting my therapy hours and since I'm monolingual, I'm gonna need to speak English and who's gonna hire me? And I found this company in Seoul that was willing to hire me and gave me a visa and brought me in. So that was kind of our big adventure was like, okay, let's go do this thing. Um, The adoptee connection piece to that is that I have my, my mom used to be a social worker and she used to do home studies. So she did home studies for adoptions when I was very young. Um, And then at some point she stopped doing it because she felt really frustrated. Like it didn't make a difference. Like people would have, not that great of a home study and they'd still be able to adopt there's like a lot of ethical things around all of that so she stopped doing that Um, but she also felt compelled to adopt older children who would not be likely to end up in a foster situation or a home situation so I have two sisters that were adopted out of China when I was in my early 20s so by the time I was in Korea Uh, My sisters have been a part of my world by, you know, just by being adjacent to my mother's work, I just have been thinking about it a lot. I'm also really passionate about thinking about race and identity and how those things interplay. And then my like real passion is attachment. And so transnational, international adoption is kind of like the intersection of all those things like race, identity, belonging, attachment, um, and so, I mean, I think what happened when I was in Korea is that I just got referred a couple of adoptees um, and they began working with me and then they were like telling everybody else. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, she's actually not hurting. I'm not feeling worse after going to therapy with this lady. She's not an adoptee, but like she seems to get it, I think. Not get it, get it, but get it enough. Um, and and so, and then I just had like the best, most lovely um, honor of just getting to listen to all of the adoptees who were at that point running goal and ask um, and doing that work around considering all of the pieces of mental health around it. So I started to part kind of collaborate there with those organizations and putting on mental health forums. I don't even remember, honestly, mm. it's been so long now that I can't remember everything. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I do, I do. I just love your community. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> really, like, there's just such an, I don't know. Um, I know we were talking about this briefly before we started recording, but, like, the, the transracial, transnational adoptees process of identity and grieving and all of that, like, lends you to a development that makes you really, really complexly aware of the world in a lot of ways that I think the average person is not. So, and I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm a depth junkie. Like you don't become a therapist because you like small talk. And I think that when you're an adoptee, you're also sick and tired of small talk, right? Like, can everyone please stop telling me like how cute I am and how like lucky I am that my parents adopted me. Like, can we actually like have a real conversation about, you know, the political dynamics involved here and, I don't know. So it just was like a good kind of match. And then I moved back to the States two years later and there in Colorado, especially there's a huge population of transracial adoptee families. And so I kind of put it out there like, Hey, you know, this is work I do. And um, I just got flooded. I had so many clients and what was so clear to me is how, Oh inadequate their previous therapeutic supports had been there had been a lot of labeling and demeaning and blaming children for things they have no control over lack of an exploration around identity and community like hey, this kind of makes sense this kid is struggling like they're the lone representative of an entire continent in their neighborhood you know like mm-hmm. that's a lot to bear let's let's consider that let's consider how that's affecting their mental health, you know that kind of stuff so then, I met another woman who is an adoptive mom and one of my favorite human beings on earth. And the two of us were like, we need to create a team of people that are competent in attachment connection focused intervention as opposed to behavioral control models of intervention that I think are really traumatic for a lot of kids. But I think especially when you have any form of early attachment loss or injury. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started doing that work and. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it feels very random, you know. It's like funny how life brings you things, you know. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Th- thank you so much for that answer, and I think you've touched on a lot of the things that we would love to dig deeper into, like very very soon. Um, but okay. um, I had I had one question. Um, like, I certainly wasn't aware of like the background with your with your mom and your sisters, but I was wondering, like, what if anything. Surprised you when you first started working with adoptees. Mm. Mm.
2: Okay. Again, you're asking me to remember things that are a long time ago, (laughs) but I think I can do it. I think I can. I think I can. I'm gonna slightly shift the word from surprised to disturb. Okay. okay. (laughs) (laughs) I told (laughs) you, talking with therapists, Um, but. I just think I felt very disturbed by the sheer absence of family adoptive family networks that were informed and attuned to the emotional experience of an adoptee like the the is dearth the right word? Is dearth mean the lack of something? I'm not sure if that's the right word. I think so. Anyway, <laughs> let's go with it. Okay, the dearth. The just the, how few adoptees I have encountered. And at this point in my career, I probably encountered, I don't know, at least a few hundred, more probably more than that, um, in-depth work. So I'm working in depth with folks how few had caregivers who had room for the, the grief and the sorrow and the and the complexity and how many of the folks who were doing the adopting were really not able to think in nuanced ways. Does that ring true to you all in your experience of the community?
1: Yeah, for sure. I Like, do you think, though, I mean, this is a little tangent, but
2: hmm.
1: it's because as an adoptive parent, confronting your child's grief is just... Like you don't want to f- feel like that pain
0: mm-hmm.
1: on behalf of your child or something, or
2: I think that it's because in at least in the US, I don't know about Australia in this way, but I think pro- probably Western culture, it's pretty much across the board. There is a thing that I like to think of as the adoption sacred cow, which is that adoption is this idea that makes us all feel very positive about humanity, mm-hmm. um, and so. I think that it becomes this like um, mascot for all that is good in the world. And then when people are adopting, I think there's a delusion in that process of I'm going to give this kid all the love that their birth family wasn't able to give them. And that's going to make it all okay. And so I think it's more that they're not prepared that no, but I, I think more and more now. I, I mean, honestly, how many adoptees are now in the like ethos, having conversations, bringing voice to this? So I think, you know, the adoptions that are still happening, I think there is more nuance in, in what's being taught to parents early on. The expectation is not you're going to, you know, save this child. It's like you, you will be a place for this child to be seen, heard, and known, and included in that portfolio will be. A lot of sorrow and confusion and complexity. Um, you're not going to make it all better. You're going to be a place where, hopefully, um, a child could be known, authentically known in their story. Um, but I think that wasn't done well for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For and, and it's not to say that there are not some adoptive parents who were doing that. I think there are some, I just, I think what was surprising to me using the word surprise was Hmm. ah, there's the refusal to see the pain, the refusal to see the complexity, the need for the the adoptee to say, I'm so lucky. I'm so thankful. I don't need to find my birth family. I don't need to have these other things because you've given me so much Hmm. making it really hard for a lot of folks to do the kind of, processing, searching, grieving necessary in the adoptee journey. Mm. And I don't mean necessary for every adoptee. I think that's actually important too. Like, I don't think, oh, you're an adoptee. You have to search. I don't. But I think you do need to have permission to honor the longings that come up for you. You know, like, what are they? And follow them. And that is way harder to do if your adoptive family structure is threatened by that process. Yeah. What? What? Uh, how? <laughs> this is where my questions come. <laughs> what? Were, did you all experience support, and have you experienced support around your own identity development and process and grieving and searching and whatever? All of that. Have you had that support from your families, adoptive families? Also, feel free to take the fifth. <laughs>
0: i um don't really know like i I think Mm -hmm. what's also come up for me um and i think it's interesting given like the start of the the like really active work perhaps that you were doing was with adult adoptees in korea which is very Mm -hmm. specific cohort of people but i think that that all of what you just said like is making me think of like all the barriers to adoptees themselves kind of turning to adoption as understanding something,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, understanding it as something that impacts on their identity and impacted on the rela- their relationships or their capacity to mm-hmm. have relationships that they want in adulthood or as teenagers mm-hmm. and whatever. And that all of those things compound to make it a confusing experience when you're mm-hmm. a young person. And then as an adult, I feel like for me, the one of the biggest one of the biggest sources of support is just like being able to connect with other adoptees, even just mm-hmm. to like understand ad- adoptee as an identity category took totally. such a long time, right? Yeah. Because adoption was always talked about as, as a type of family formation or as something that mm-hmm. happened to you, but now isn't really important or. Right. You know, right.
2: Yeah, like you were saved from your non-adoptedness. It was your non-adoptedness that was bad and now you're adopted and so we're good. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think the complexity of identity formation, like that makes sense to me, what you're saying there of like, it just feels like I don't, I'm actually not sure. If you were to say to your family, I have really complex feelings around my story and my journey, part of me is you know, so thankful for you all. And part of me feels pissed off that you took me out of my country of origin and I had to live amongst the white people. I mean, I'm just making, I'm projecting. I don't know what your <laughs> communities are like in Melbourne. But like, if you were to say that to your family, do they have the wherewithal to hold that complexity with you?
1: Um, The, the short answer is no. Mm. I... I I feel like I've intimated um, parts of that entire sentence at different times with my adoptive parents, but, um, but I've never said like everything directly at the same time because that also would be a lot (laughs) upsetting. I think it's interesting because on the one hand, my parents are very supportive. You know, they were supportive of my search, like, 95% 95% supportive. Mm. I could sense that it was a bit threatening at times when I reunited. but um, And they were supportive mm-hmm. of me living in Korea, probably didn't expect me to live there for quite that long. So, I mean, I know lucky is a loaded word, but I feel fortunate in that way that um, mm. I haven't had extra resistance to me mm. exploring Korea. And, I, you know, I really... I think I've really explored it. Like I've gotten quite far mm-hmm. down the, the rabbit hole, you know? Um, <laughs> and, um, but then on the other hand, there are so many things that where my family and I, we just don't really go there in conversation. Mm-hmm. like.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, Mr. Rogers, one of my favorite quotes from Mr. Rogers is what is mentionable is manageable. And I think that in the domain of adoption for a lot of folks, there's a lot of unmentionable things, right? Like that feels really messy. Don't know what to do with that. Um, which is just, I don't know. My hope is that it stops being that way. And what you're doing in having a podcast called adopted fields, fields, <laughs> fields, adopted fields. huh? That's a different image. Anyway, um, that, it's like, that's the beginning of that. <clears throat> healing process like we can come around like we can mention all of this and we'll mention it together and maybe our maybe our adoptive families or our you know birth families like families of origin if we have reunification maybe they all can't handle some of this complexity it's might be too hard but like we can and we're all going to handle it together and yeah I think that part is amazing
1: I also wanted to ask, and I think, I guess I'm like asking this to kind of like look for validation for, um, for any like transnational adoptees who may be like returning to their birth countries mm-hmm. um, to live. Do you think that adoptees living in their birth countries have either additional or slightly different needs for support? than mm. adoptees mm. just living in their adopted countries? Well,
2: yes. So I think there's a couple of really complicated things that happen when you are adopted internationally. So you, especially if you're adopted pre-verbally, so before the age of th- two, I guess, but pre-explicit um, memory would be between the before the age of three. So if you can't remember mm. when you were adopted, there's a lot of really complex sensory processing. Um, you know, like, I mean, I just think about like being on the subway and like kimchi and soju, like that's a smell, you know, like it's a very particular smell. And if you're a little baby and you're growing up in an environment and you have like fermented cabbage in your nostrils, and that is the point of significant loss in your life. And then you move to the land of the dairy cow right? Um, I mean, I'm, that's what I would consider the US. We're just all milk and dairy. Um, actually, one of my Korean friends told me they thought that Westerners smelled like dairy. And I was like, oh, of course we do. <laughs> uh. anyway, squirrel. But so then you move into this place that has a very different sensory profile, okay? And you grow up in that place. And you, you don't have the um, connection to that original sensory profile. Now you move back into that space. You are likely to get activated in ways that you can't even fully process because they're pre verbal. <laughs> you're going to enter a space that your nervous system remembers, but your explicit memory doesn't. And so there's a vulnerability there. So that's a vulnerable thing. Um, if you're transracial, I mean, most, they're not all. Transnational adoptees are end up in transracial families. But if you are transracial and if you were growing up in regions where you were one of the sole representatives of your race, your identity, your culture um, of origin, and then you go back into the place where everyone else has been identifying you, right? So you're in you're in the Western world and everyone is identifying you through your race, through your ethnicity. And then you go back to this country, and then everyone there is like, you're not us. <laughs> you don't walk like us you don't talk like us you're foreign-ish you're not all the way a foreigner but you're foreign-ish it's a different kind of rejection it's like wait I don't belong there but I don't belong here like I don't get to count fully anywhere I mean I think that's where coming together as adoptees is so important Is like okay now here's the place where I don't have to explain why I belong I just belong so I think those pieces and then I think there's grief in it it's like you're exploring a place you've lost And you might have it now, but not in the way that your heart kind of longs for it to have been, right? Yeah. And then if you're engaging in, you know, birth family search or reunification, then that shit gets real emotional, period. That's overwhelming. So I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Oh, no, that's, you're very good at summarizing information. (laughs) (laughs)
2: oh good okay good good
0: (laughs) high praise from hannah i love it i I also um i appreciate that amazing answer too because it also spotlights how adoptees returning that may not consciously like want to do birth family search like they they are still experiencing all sorts of Mm -hmm. cultural losses too right yeah and the sensory side of things and I think that's something that Hannah and I have talked a lot about like this Mm -hmm. like idea of the birth family search Mm -hmm. kind of being seen as like the sole event yeah
2: Yes. yes yes well you know the way I think about this and I've tried to describe this to um friends and family members who are connected to adoptees and trying to understand that process. Um, I'll say like, you know, I, I grew up in a home for, from the age I was five till I was 16. And like that place, 2856 East kettle place, like that place, I have an attachment to that place. And once or twice I've like returned and been like that weirdo. That's like, I used to live here. Can I look for your house? <laughs> um, and, and, it's powerful. Like our relationship to spaces and places is powerful. And if I went back there when I was 90, it would be my childhood home. I think it would still have like a significant complex feeling for me. And I left that place when my parents got divorced. So there's loss involved in the loss of that place. Like what if Mm -hmm. my parents had stayed married? Maybe that place would still exist. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that's this big, I, I know you're not gonna do a video, but it's teeny, that's teeny, that's teeny in comparison to the loss of a country of origin. I really think like, it's massive. Like, as creatures, we are culturally identified. That is how human beings work, that's how we're wired. And there's research that shows the very first thing we notice about somebody is their ethnic or racial identity in, response, in, in relationship to ours. Um mm-hmm. so before we want to know what gender you are, we want to know where are you from, which is I know one of the most exhausting microaggressions that you get as a person of color. Where are you from? I don't know. There's a lot that needs to be attended to in returning to a country you lost and maybe lost before you even had memory to understand the loss. Mm-hmm. Right? And then as you arrive, you realize how much you lost. You know, like you go, you walk down the streets and you're like, oh, I lost this. I lost walking through a crowd of people where I am indistinguishable. That feeling of like, I'm just a lump in the crowd. I I, like most people don't appreciate that as a thing, but that's a thing. Being able to like walk into a crowd of people and not feel like everyone's going, one of these things is not like the other. That's exhausting. Right? So yeah, I think there's a lot to be attended to the loss of, I don't know, the tradition of food and cooking and, music I mean I am a part of like that you know white reality where my ancestors gave up their identities in order to claim whiteness and white belonging in the U.S. and so like mm-hmm. I don't have like the Irish lullabies but when I listen to Irish music I feel something I'm like I don't know. This is like in me. I like want a river dance. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> should I? No, I should not. But there, but there's a, I don't know. There's something spiritual almost, I think, about our connection to our cultural ethnic origins. Um, and when you've lost that and you've grown up in a family that maybe lost their origins a long time ago, but is not actively processing that loss, it's a lot to go back into that space and face yeah
0: all of those things yeah especially when like like we've talked about earlier like adoption's not seen and acknowledged as a form of loss it's always a form of gain totally
2: totally totally when you said you wanted validation hannah what parts of what i was saying were true for your experience
1: I, I love this, like, two-way conversation, by the way. Um, That's good. It's
2: way more comfortable <laughs> for me.
1: <laughs> well, everything you said, but particularly just naming that, um, it's this process of of grief just being there. I, don't, I mean, it's it's strange because it's um, – I think there's this simultaneous process of joy and – delight and mm-hmm. comfort and also mm-hmm. being confronted with everything that, that you could have had in a different life. Yes. Um, and it's, it's like the sliding door moment to moment. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, and it's happening in all these like big and small ways. And, um, and, and I think as well, like um, there is, so I left Korea when I was three and a half. So I, I was verbal, but I don't really have any memories. So it's- I mean, it,
2: you were right on the edge. Three and a half is very young and it's traumatic. And sometimes we don't actually process trauma in a explicit way. It's all feelings and less processing. And so even if you're adopted at five or seven, sometimes you don't have a lot of memory because at the point in time that everything that's happening is just overwhelming. So three and a half. Yeah. I have I have twin three and a half year old. So I actually just like that, like just gave me the feels.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> cause that's, that's a really, that's a, yeah, it's, um, it's a, well, look, they're all vulnerable ages, but, um, yeah, but it is, there's, you knew, you knew, yeah. you knew if a lot. I, about... Yeah, I knew, but it's, um, it's funny as well. I guess like when you lose a language and yeah, adopt mm-hmm. a second one, um, yes. y- you may also lose memories there, I suppose. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Totally.
2: I was just thinking, um, so I always ask my sisters for permission to share their stories um, because that's another thing that I feel like the adoptee community has really helped me understand is how violating it can feel to just have like some of your most vulnerable stories shared openly with others, with strangers, with Whatever, um, but so I have permission. I say that because I think that's important. One of my one of my sisters and I actually traveled back to China together. So there's an adoptee group in Colorado, and they're called Adopteen, and it's really cool. It's like this group um, that every year they put on conferences, and like 200 300 adoptees, mostly Chinese adoptees, come together. That's my cat that you're seeing in the background. Sorry. <laughs> thank you um and um at some point they kind of devised this idea that it might be helpful for some of these um teen adoptees to all return to China together like at once I think they had a, I think they had multiple agendas in this it doesn't matter anyway in that <laughs> they asked me to go on the trip with them to sort of like be a support on that and My sister wanted to go on the trip, so I was like, hell yeah, I'm going. If she's going, I'm going. And, you know, she she was adopted at 9. We went on the trip when she was 16 or 17. And we were there for 10 days. And, man, it was a lot. I have a memory of her, like, crawling into my bed. It wasn't even a twin bed. It was, like, less than a twin, whatever you call that. And, like just needing to be like completely held and like my sister is a tough ass motherfucker. That's her vibe. And (laughs) it was like, it was just so it was sensory overwhelming to like process. And like, there were things I think she hadn't remembered that we're coming back in different ways. Just like, and we weren't at her orphanage in specific um, so we went into different orphanages, and we like volunteered, which again, lots of we could have a whole conversation about that type of a mission or whatever it is. Um, but I think the idea was for the adoptees to be able to process some of these beginnings that they couldn't remember. And what I found was in this group, like I mean, there were so many meltdowns that couldn't be explained. And I'm like, well, that's a sensory meltdown. It's like there there's something here grief wise that, you're, you may not remember in this prefrontal explicit way, but man, your body remembers it. Mm. And, and, and how to put words to it, maybe not possible, but it's there. It's tender. So, I mean, I'm just wanting to validate like your tenderness there. I just think that's really sensical. I think it makes a lot of sense.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm conscious of the time and like Gosh, we could talk to your day, but um, maybe this can lead into talking more about attachment, which is your like Mm. current passion. So you mentioned that in working with adoptees, you um, use more attachment and no achievement um, interventions rather than behavioral behavioral interventions. Mm can you one? I what? I'm curious what you mean by um, what are behavioral interventions? And yeah, can you just mm-hmm. like talk a little bit more about
2: mm-hmm. your mm-hmm.
1: all of that? Approach? Okay, yeah. so all
2: right, Get ready. I'm going to give you guys a mouthful. Oh. <laughs> okay. So attachment is the human drive to have close relationships. As we develop and throughout our lifespan, but especially in young periods of childhood, it helps us to stay safe and to stay regulated. So the human brain is co-regulated by other human brains in development. No baby comes out of, of their birth parents womb and just like grabs a piece of bark and some moss, finds a blanket and goes on. Right. They require human touch human feeding human care human nurture um but not all caregivers are able to give the same level of care right so what we know is that our attachment is not genetic it's driven by our experiences of caregiving and it's a dynamic it's a relationship dynamic um So when we study attachment, we're studying the quality of a relationship between a caregiver and a child in childhood. And then as, as people grow up, then we are studying the attachment relationship between adults and other adults in romance or like your BFF, you know, like who's your person, whoever that's like your attachment figure. Um, And we're looking at what's happening in that relationship dynamic in a secure attachment experience a child is able to stay with a birth parent early on. <laughs> like that's, that's a given, right? Like in, in terms of like, that is the natural biological process. Um, in being able to stay with that caregiver, that caregiver, if they're secure, will be deeply responsive. So a baby cries and a secure caregiver goes, oh no. And they pick them up and they hold them, they rock them, they smell their diaper, they try and feed them, right? Like there's this sense of, I, as an infant, I signal my distress, my tenderness, my emotional state, and my caregiver responds and helps me regulate. And in a secure experience, that happens thousands of times before a child is even like 18 months of age. So if we look at attachment injury, right, just the separating from a birth parent, that's a loss. Infants can, they know the voice of the adults that are around them when they are in utero. So like an an in utero infant knows what their mother's voice sounds like. So there's already a bond. So a loss, even even right at the exit of the birth canal or the C-section, even at that point in time, there is a disruption to attachment security. And it doesn't mean like, you are damaged. (laughs) Like, no, 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 no. But like, yes, that's a tender loss. And and I I think part of why I'm saying that so strongly is that's another thing I've learned in the adoptee community is a lot of people will say things like, well, she was only three months or he was only five weeks, as if that means there wasn't any loss or injury. Um, Let's say now, okay, so now let's say let's say a child experiences that loss at five weeks and they're brought into a home that is deeply secure and responsive that child will still have a secure attachment experience over time because their attachment will evolve and adapt to attaching to those caregivers if those caregivers are attuned and responsive. Now, let's say that child hits the point of identity and they start to recognize, I don't look like my brothers, other brothers my biological brothers and sisters and I don't look like my parents. And every time we go to Target, someone's like, oh, a little China doll. And your parents have to say, actually, they're Korean. And it's this whole thing like, well, now that child is processing something else. And now the question is, is the caregiver adept at attuning to what that experience is like for that child? If the caregiver is wed to the idea that adoption is a positive, wonderful thing, and this child is way better off than they were before, 100% positive, signed, sealed, and stamped, well, it's going to be a little harder to sit with that child and acknowledge that it's painful not to be familially identified. In public, that's painful. Um, and it's, it has different levels of pain for different people. I have known adoptees that would define themselves as very extra and who would literally say, Actually, I really love being this because I feel like it gives me a lot of extra attention and I'm kind of into it. And I, I'm like, You do you. Like, you feel however you feel. This is not about saying you should feel one way or should feel another way. But I think when we're considering, what an adoptee's experience has been. We're thinking what happened to them early on? And like, okay, so that there's the the adoptee that's been adopted at five weeks. There's an adoptee that was maybe in the care of a foster family for three and a half years. Um, If that foster family was secure and responsive and relational, the separation from them will be painful, but that adoptee will actually adapt better to the next family because they've had a secure experience. Mm -hmm. If they had an insecure experience it'll make it harder to bond with the next family which i think is kind of backwards sometimes people think like oh like if you bonded that means that messed you up more when that separation happened and the truth is actually it it did it hurt but it but it gave you a template for feeling close to people and and having responsive caregivers um so what behavioral therapy okay so let me me say all that so there's lots of complex trauma lots of complex dynamics going on there Mm -hmm. um Let's say a family is struggling. Let's say an adoptee is really struggling with going to bed at night. Well, bedtime can be really complicated if you've ever had separation from caregivers because bedtime feels like separation. And it's also the dark and the dark is scary. And maybe you have an adoptive family that's like, okay, this is just insane. They're like ripping, you know, the sheets at night. They're like pounding and they're getting violent. They're getting, and they come into a therapy session. And if a therapist is behavioral, their response is like, well, You need to be really clear that they can't have sheets in their room. If they keep ripping them, they're going to have to sleep on a bare bed. Okay, I think you're catching what I'm throwing here. It's punitive. It's harmful. This child is struggling because they have experienced and they are processing the kind of loss that no human being should ever have to endure. And so we want to look at what they're experiencing and what their behavior means through the lens of connection and attachment. So I would far rather in an attachment focused kind of lens say, well, what does, what are they asking you for? Do they want you to stay? Are they wanting to sleep with you? Um, You know, what are you noticing is calming and soothing? And can we respond in that way? You know, oh, well, they want to sleep with me, but they can't sleep with me forever. Well, first of all, they could technically, I just wouldn't like, they (laughs) could, But also Mm. they developmentally are needing this. And part of why that, that kid might be needing this is because They spent, you know, I'm just thinking about one of the orphanages I went to in China where it was like, I mean, it is hard to see. It is hard to see kids in institutional situations, Um, but where they're like laying in the back of, of a crib with no warm fuzzies, there's no stuffies, they're just laying there and they've learned how to disassociate. And so now they've come into your home and they're terrified that that will happen again. Like their body is saying like, please don't leave, please don't leave. It's, you're not babying them. You're not spoiling them. You're honoring that like their nervous system needs this right now. It's okay. But they're 10 years old. I don't fucking care. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: They, they might be 10 years old chronologically, but there's like a one-year-old and a two-year-old that never got held at all. And so like, it's Okay. <laughs> respond um, um, obviously you can hear that I have like whatever a little bit of anger you just heard in there is I think <laughs> from times when I worked with families who really refused to give that kind of compassion and tenderness and warmth to their child and I think I still feel a little bit protective about that mm. and like their they're children and it's not their fault and it's not their job and we don't need to diagnose them reactive attachment disorder and blame them for their struggle to feel safe they have valid reasons that they don't feel safe let's help them feel safe
1: so it's it's both an attachment lens and just like context you know like yeah
2: yes yes story so and and i think what is your attachment story right what is that context um Okay, so then let's translate this into our adult relationships a little bit. And I'm going to use my own story, which is not an adoption story, but I have attachment trauma. So I think that might also be the other reason why I feel such a click within the (laughs) adoption community is that I have also had to go on a pretty significant journey to feel secure in my attachment relationships. So when I was a wee lass... My mom was in a lot of struggle and strain with her mental health. And so she went into severe depressions, like the kind of depressions where she couldn't get out of bed, where she felt suicidal. Um, It was really, really scary. And so I, as a small child, absorbed all of that and did what I could to cope. I didn't think about it a ton, past the point that it resolves, which is kind of what we tend to do as kids. If there's no one to help us process trauma, we tend to just sort of like file it in the away zone. You know, it's sort of like, I don't want to think about that is, is how I would describe it. Like thinking about that doesn't feel good. And so um, did you just let your cat in?
1: yeah. I love it. Scratching.
2: I'm totally. sorry. I, no, no, I just love it because that's so exactly that's what I would have to do. No, 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 no. Good timing because now we're having a kitty fest. Both <laughs> of our cats have entered the zone. And like, I don't know. I just love cats. Okay. I didn't think about that a lot because it was too hard for me to process. It was too painful for me to process some of those memories. Um, and when I got into my teen years and um, specifically my early adulthood, when I was in dating relationships, if someone was bored, maybe they just weren't talkative that day, my nervous system would go aflame because it looked and smelled like my mother slowly starting to go into a depression. So I, my own attachment experiences in my nervous system were informing how I was reading information in the present. Um, and my husband was a huge part of that healing because he's a significant introvert. And so we had to go through this little <laughs> dance where, he, you know, we'd have like this amazing time together. And then he'd be like, see you later. And I'd be like, like tomorrow, like tomorrow, I mean, like in the morning. Is that when I'll see you later? And, you know, he'd be like, I was thinking in a few days. <laughs> and then my nervous would be like, Man, And so we had to figure out how to negotiate my response to that and his present reality, which was like, I just like time alone. It has nothing to do with you. This is not a rejection of you. This does not mean something's wrong with our relationship. It doesn't mean something's wrong with me. Um, So when we have these early attachment wounds, we have to begin to understand them and process them. So that then in adulthood, we can begin to have a different experience in our relationships. Um, which, you know, I think, I don't know how long it took me. I hope it takes everybody else a lot less long than it took me. <laughs> but but I, I think, you know, if you really put in the work to process your losses and understand how they impacted you and recognize it was never your fault, it was never about you being worthy or unworthy then you get to move into this really amazing place where you're not like trying to find yourself all the time. You're just like in yourself. Do you feel that way? Do you too feel in yourself?
0: I do a lot more now.
2: Hmm. And would you say that was as a result of putting in the kind of work I'm talking about?
0: P- probably like in, in various levels of, subconscious and subconscious ways and like you know yeah i guess like yeah you know seeing seeing therapists for for a very long time mm-hmm. um good ones i hope well you know uh, <laughs> I do. some good some i do not so not mm-hmm. so, not so helpful i would say not yeah. <laughs> necessarily not so and good. some
2: and, and some therapists are right for a season and then we outgrow them and there's like a oh mm. that was what i needed for a season and now i need something different but I just, I feel protective. I'm like, I hope you've had good care because it does make a difference.
1: So Eli, I'm, I guess that's what you're referring to. Like that, that process of becoming securely attached is what you're referring to in your upcoming book, which is a guided journal. Um, about like healing your attachment patterns in in your book. I, as I understand, you talk about earned secure attachment. Yes. Like I kind of want to ask you more about mm-hmm. how you um, like healed your own attachment wounds or how mm-hmm. you and your husband became more securely attached mm-hmm. to each other because – Because attachment is kind of, um, I think, you know, it's been kind of in the public consciousness for particularly the last couple of years. You know, I feel like it's obviously one thing to understand what it is and have some understanding of your own patterns and then, you know, another thing to actually change change them. them. Yes. Like, I would say, I mean, I guess I'm going to speak for Ryan and say that I think Ryan seems like, securely attached to their partner. Hmm. Yeah. And um but I'm more in like like I know that I definitely have certain patterns of relating that tend to only um gosh, I'm oversharing here but anyway, they are like, oh, I love it. I'm loving
2: every minute of it. Keep going. And everyone else who's listening is loving it too because they're all like say more because they're thinking all the same things. <laughs> um
1: but there are things that very specifically come out Either in very, very close friendships or or in romantic relationships.
2: Our attachment stuff
1: gets activated in our
2: attachment relationships. So you can feel super cool, calm and confident with a general friend in your life, and then you start getting close to them and all of a sudden shit gets weird inside.
1: Yes. And and it's like sometimes I'm I'm really not reacting to the current reality of a situation. Like there's there's this like like a cloudy filter that's like from the past that's definitely like um obscuring things. And anyway, so so I'm I'm curious for you like both Mm -hmm. how long it took and what it took, but you know, I I feel like I had a very similar experience when I was in my late teens and starting to date and Mm -hmm. look big feelings and like strange kind of reactions and um, anxieties were coming up and I had no idea at first like what was going on I mean I I had an inkling even then that like I feel like this is related to my adoption or like you know really early childhood but I'm curious to hear more about your process (laughs) Well, so f- for me, and so I, you probably heard about
2: like the different styles, this does get complicated. And I want you all to know that it's not just you that feels complicated about it, because there are two different bodies of research on attachment. And one comes from the social psychology uh, side of research, and one is the developmental psychology side of research. Um, and the developmental psychology says study attachment is the study of these relationships. And social psychology turned it more into like a typology, like you're this type or you're that type. Um, I am far more loyal to the developmental research for multiple reasons. One, I do think that we are more complicated than a type. Mm. Um, Two, it's been around for longer. That research has been you know, replicated and studied like the tradition of the developmental research has been for a long around for a lot longer. Um, and three, I think it's more hopeful to be able to look at patterns and not styles to say, what's my pattern and how does it change depending on who I'm with? So my, I do think we do tend to have like a default setting and our default setting tends to be about whatever primary caregiving relationship most influenced our attachment. So for the majority of people, that is a mother figure because for the majority of people, it was a mother who spent the majority of time tending to the relationship and doing the child kit, but it's not exclusively a mother. It can be a father. It can be a, you know, obviously anyone who identifies outside of those gender binaries. Um, But That relationship does tend to have the biggest impact because it's the one we're in in those zero to three ages when our brain is doing the most intense forms of growth. So you have a default setting. So my default setting um, growing up was uh, this is also annoying because there's also so many different words we use to describe. So I can literally use these four words and they're all the same pattern. Um, It is called an insecure, anxious, resistant, ambivalent in childhood, or in adulthood, preoccupied, those are all the same style. And sometimes people call that style anxious attachment style. Um, But what that's referring to is a pattern of coping. And the pattern of coping is I am hyper vigilant with the people I'm attached to, I am always convinced they're going to leave me at some point. So I am looking for constant reassurance. And I'm also checking for when the other shoe is going to drop um and I don't feel that I am worthy of being chosen and so I'm going to continue to try to become more worthy and I'm going to try to do the things I think will make them want to stay with me that's what I adapted into that's my default setting but I dated people who had that default setting on steroids and I became far more avoidant so in that dynamic Mm -hmm. um The real question, I think, for most people is, did you have a secure or an insecure experience? And your insecure experience might have been avoidant, meaning I'm going to just try to um, keep all of my feelings and needs inside when I'm around my close people in hopes that I won't burden them so they'll stay close to me and not go away. Avoidance is not I don't want attachment. I'm not avoiding attachment. I'm avoiding my tender needs and distress. Um, So... And then the last category is disorganized, which is when you have abusive or frightening caregivers. Um, that's a whole other thing, which is like, I don't feel safe in close relationships, which is different than I feel anxious in close relationships. Mm. Um, I feel worried that someone's going to leave me. It's different than like, I literally expect people to like intentionally hurt me. So you let's say you're listening to me and you're thinking, well, I'm definitely one of the insecure categories. I'm not sure which one. And to what degree. And I might have some of both, um, which I would say most people have some, a little, a little cornucopia of some of those different patterns, (laughs) you know, based on, based on what caregivers were around you. I think there are some, there were some real secure things inside of me because ironically enough, my dad's parents were able to be really secure with me as their grandchild, even though they weren't able to be that way with him as their child, which I do Mm -hmm. see. It's a very interesting like leap of sorts. It's like once people aren't identifying with their children, they're more accepting of them. Mm -hmm. And so like my grandkid, it's easier to accept them when they're crying than my child, because my child's crying. It's like a representation of me and my parenting. But if my grandchild is crying, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I get to just be the nurturer. So anyway, I had, I do think I had some secure internal templates from my grandparents. I had some avoidant templates from my relationship with my dad, and I had some ambivalent, resistant, preoccupied templates from my relationship with my mom. So I think my process took longer than it needed to because the resources weren't available, and I was doing all the research on my own. Mm. My hope in writing Securely Attached is that it will speed up people's processes. That's part of why I wrote it. I want, I, it's like this is your template. So then we have data on this. The key to earning a secure pattern is processing the way that your early experiences affected you with emotion. So you can't just think about it. You have to feel it. Sorry. <laughs> that it. And I think the most powerful way for that to happen is in the context of people who can bear witness with you. And I don't think that has to be a therapist. I think that could be a, a, a supportive friend who's also an adoptee. And that's like, maybe you're just talking about like something you realized or a story that you have um that really reminds you of how many years you spent feeling isolated in certain types of pain etc how long that's going to take is going to de- is gonna depend on how much support you have in your life now and and how much shit you went through mm-hmm. <laughs> i wish that wasn't true but that's true mm. you know if you had really brutal beginnings it's going to take longer And I would say, I just really hope you surround yourself with care in whatever ways you can. And then it's about simultaneously letting yourself dream and hope for the kind of people you really want in your life. Like, who do you actually want? What kind of a person are you looking for? People, who are your people? And how do you want to be treated? And learning how to be the kind of person that you want, right? um but also learning how to walk away from the kind of people that are not going to be able to give you what you need like I am a total tender heart I needed a partner who could sit with me while I like cried in a puddle on the floor about some of the things that happened in my childhood and like my sweetheart is even though his his pattern was avoidant he's a tender heart I mean he like Wrapped, I remember like him wrapping his arms around me at some point and just going little Eli. And I was like, <laughs> you know, just like full in my trauma cry. He was like, snot everywhere. Um, I needed that to heal. I don't know that everybody needs that. I think a lot of people don't need that level. I needed that level of nurture. Mm-hmm. I also am an independent bug. So I needed someone that didn't get insecure when I was doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know, like that that process of it's it's reflecting, grieving, acknowledging, dreaming. Hoping. And and that's a real I sometimes I think the hope part is actually the hardest part.
0: Yeah. From from that process that you've just described, like it can take a long time for someone to even think that they deserve to even oh. hope that, right? Like, yes. like to dream yes. that. Um, and that also relies on like a level of self-awareness around what is okay and not okay. And you know, what do I want and what, what do I not have to put up with anymore?
2: Yes. So, yes, totally. No, I want, you know, I'm really, it's hard because I want people to do this work. I also don't want to blow sunshine up people's behinds. It's not easy work, (laughs) you know, like this is, but is it worth it? Yeah it may not actually feel like it the whole way through there. You may have moments where you're like that fucking therapist. I want to kill her because she made me think that I was going to come out of this and it feels like I never will, but you will, you have to keep going. You will get there. And when you get there, it's like, I don't know. I was a backpacking guide like a hundred years ago in another life. And you know, there's these moments when you're like uh, climbing a peak and your blisters hurt and the sun is hot and you are like at your third fall summit. And you're just like, I hate hiking. I hate it. Why am I doing this? You know? And then you get to the top and there's this thing that happens. It's like seriously spiritual where you have like this view of nature and it's like, like majestical. And all of a sudden you're like, that was worth it. You know, and then you get to tell people like, yeah, I, I uh, summited pyramid. And they're like, oh, wow, that's almost a 14. or you're like, oh, I'm pretty cool. And I did that. And you get to feel proud of yourself. And I would say if you know you have significant attachment trauma and you're nervous about this work, go buy my book and get a good therapist and have that person walk through it with you piece by piece. And if you can find a therapist who's an adoptee, fabulous. I don't know if you know of... Um, Dr. Shada Wurda-Liker, I can send Mm -hmm. you guys a link, but she's an adoptee here in Colorado, and she has a whole, um, I believe it's global, if it's not global, it's definitely for U.S. folks, um, list of adoptees who are therapists, who offer adoption-specific therapy, because I think that is helpful, too, just to know, to have that person who knows some of that journey walking with you.
0: Do you have access to our Google sheet? Because I feel like you just no. answered questions in advance. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? That's so yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones that we had listed <laughs> for like, oh, and then we'll ask about like adoption therapists. and. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, you're just my people.
0: I love it. Which is all to say, um, Hannah, do you have other questions? Because now we
1: <laughs> have <laughs> there anything else that you wanted to add, Eli? I think we've covered our stuff.
2: Okay, I want to say one more thing, whether or not you get to ever know the depth of your origin story. So whether or not you get to reunite or have information about what happened and what led to the relinquishment between you and your birth family, the blank that's there, the I don't know what's there. What does not belong in the blank is something was wrong with me that does not belong in that blank because there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a baby or a child who is worth relinquishing. That is not a thing. There are only circumstances that lead to that untenable decision. And so if you've ever had the thought, why me? What did I do? What was it about me? I just want you to know it wasn't you. It was a government system that failed to give your caregivers what they needed. It was a family system that did not know how to cope with your presence in the world. It was not you. And your people, whether they are your birth family or your chosen family, exist in the world. And your people want you to be you, not somebody else. So, I don't know, for what that's worth. From some random lady on the internet. I hope that helps.
0: <laughs> no, I I I think that really does, and it it's just brought up for for me like again like I don't know why this has come up with such a theme, but like the 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 pressure and expectations that are placed on mm. what a birth family search and reunion might one day deliver, mm. if it ever mm-hmm. delivers anything, um, right. I think also occludes the fact that. Like the blank, as you call it, or like the unknowns, they persevere even if you've reunited. That that yes. like I think that's not talked about maybe enough. And I agree. Um, so I appreciate that reminder because I think even people that have reunited still need that still reminder. blanks. Yeah. Well, and I have
2: blanks. You know, like no, like just because you stay in your family of origin doesn't mean you have a family of origin that's able to talk about all the things that are yeah. happening and help you process them and acknowledge them, like. Yeah. Let's honor those, let honor those blanks and fill them in with a sense of self-compassion and nurture. And yeah, we're all doing the best we can around here. <laughs> it's so lovely to connect with both of you. Yes. Thank you,
1: thank so, you much. so much. I'm, I'm actually, to be honest, like congratulating myself for like randomly <laughs> reaching out. Cause I was like, Oh, maybe Maybe she's kind of like too famous now to like speak <laughs> <it> to us. <laughs> um, and I think that, like, so Miju is someone that believes that everything happens for a reason.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and look, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but I just think it's. We're so grateful that all these factors in your life converge mm-hmm. to make you um, such a wonderful support and resource and ally mm. for our community thank and you. yeah and this thank has been you. so nurturing this interview um but oh. now oh. we have to rush to work because it's like yes. our morning. go 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 but, um, go, go. such a nice start to the day oh thank you for having me it's truly truly
2: an honor i can't wait to share and just yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you thank you
0: thank you thank you Eli's book, Securely Attached, a guided workbook to help heal insecure attachment patterns, has now been released. Grab your copy from any major book retailer and learn more about Eli's work at attachmentnerd.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or check out our website, adoptedfeels.com.